This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GYC. Welcome to the year 2020. How many of you are excited to be here this evening? Amen. Amen. Friends, the first thing that I would like to do as we begin this conference is just give a rousing amen to those that have made it happen. Can you do that with me? Amen. Amen. So many people, most of them here, but some that cannot be here have put so much time and effort into allowing this conference to be a possibility, and we believe that God is going to do something mighty over the next few days. My name is Dean Cullinane. I was born in the Republic of Ireland, grew up in London, England. My wife in here, who was just uh, on the stage, um, we've lived in the United States for exactly four years now as of last night. The Lord blessed us with the uh, opportunity and possibility to move to California, where I've been studying at Weimar College, one of our Adventist institutions there. Um, and I now work as the dean at Weimar Academy. I've heard all the jokes of Dean the Dean, um, but I have the privilege of being there and working with some amazing young people from the ages of 14 to 18. And I'm excited as well to just praise the Lord because as of two weeks ago, I finished with school. Um, I'm very grateful that the Lord has led me through that. And if I had to ask you to have a wild guess as to what it is or what it was that I was studying, I imagine that you would fall into one of three categories. Surely I must either be studying theology, I must be studying education, or I must be studying something in the medical field, maybe nursing or pre-med. And the reason, if you did pick one of those three, I think is because as Adventists, it's almost as if that's just what we're meant to do. Have you realized? It's almost as if those are the only three options available. I mean, if you went to a public secular university, you would have no chance at guessing what that person that you've just walked up to is studying. There's no way you'd get it. Zoology, meteorology, engineering, psychology, it's endless. But if you go to an Adventist, you can look like a prophet if you just take a wild guess at one of those three. And if you did take a wild guess at one of those three, you would be right. I've just finished studying theology. But I think the reason why we fall into one of those categories is because we believe that especially there can we make a difference. I believe within all of us gathered here this evening that there is a desire to truly make a difference. So let's choose one of those categories, not my own. Let's choose being a doctor. How much difference can one doctor make in the world? A group of researchers teamed up with an aspiring doctor that had the same desires to figure this out, and they concluded that the average doctor adds to his patients a combined 140 years of life. Now, that's not an easy thing to put a number on, but that's the number they came to with a few degrees of variance. Now, using a standard conversion rate given by the World Bank, they've concluded that 30 extra years of life is considered a life saved. 
So on average, a doctor, speaking about doctors in developing countries, save about five lives over the course of their career. Now, without wanting to devalue life or underappreciate the work of physicians, five lives doesn't seem like an awful lot. Some doctors, though, do achieve an awful lot. Take Dr. David Nerland, for example. Working in Burma and Bangladesh, he discovered a breakthrough treatment for patients suffering from diarrhea. He figured out that giving patients water mixed with the specific and just right concentration of sugar and water, they would rehydrate at the same rate in which they are losing fluids. Since then, which was in 1968, the annual rate of death from diarrhea has dropped from 5 million a year to 1.3 million. So when you compare the numbers, he's saving hundreds of thousands of more people every year than the average doctor is today. Those numbers, though, dwindle when you compare them to that of Carl Landsteiner, who discovered blood groups and changed the way that we even view anatomy and physiology. Or consider one Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet army during the Cold War. In 1983, Petrov was on duty as a Soviet missile base when early warning systems indicated to him that the United States had sent incoming missiles. Protocol therefore dictated that the Soviet army return the strike, but Petrov did not push the button. He reasoned that the number of missiles was far too few to warrant a counterattack and thereby disobeyed protocol. If he had ordered a strike, there is at least a reasonable chance that hundreds of millions would have died. The two countries would likely have entered into all-out nuclear war, leading to billions of deaths possibly. If we're being conservative, we might say that Petrov saved one billion lives. But even that could be an underestimation. Why am I telling you this? Because I feel as though wanting to make a difference is not enough. Instead of trying to make a difference, I believe that we should be trying to make the difference. You see, I don't want to just change things. I want to completely transform and revolutionize them. I remember shortly after I became an Adventist, I was called to this event. It was titled, Each One Reach One. Great premise. If everyone reached one person, the world church would double in a year. And when you look at that kind of exponential growth, we'd probably be going home very soon. The problem is, when everyone is set such a low target, there's not a whole lot of motivation to meet it. If I'm set that target in January 1, I can wait until December to try and reach my one, and then December rolls on, and I don't have enough time. And so I had an idea. What if we changed it just slightly? What if instead of each one reach one, it became each one reach one thousand? Well, you'd better start on January 2nd. Friends, I'm not comfortable with just bringing one person to Jesus. Is bringing one person good? Absolutely. Does heaven rejoice when one person comes to the Lord? Yes, yes they do. Would Jesus have come for just one person? Yes, he would have. But what I want to speak to you about this evening is about making the difference, maximizing our reach and making the most amount of difference. Being the ones that are responsible for changing the entire world. Because when I read the Bible, that is what I see. 
I see wholesale change. I see people that would not settle for, for anything less than complete transformation. And when I look at the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer in 1 Samuel chapter 14, that is what I see. Friends, the title for this evening's message is A Thousand Shall Run. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your time. This is your stage. This is your word. We ask that you would speak to our hearts and change us even now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I often hark on about reading the Bible for the first time again. I know it doesn't make much sense at first, first listen, but could you imagine going over the stories that you know so well for the first time and receiving them as fresh as they, as they were that very first time you went through? I actually started a ministry, a podcast on this very idea. It's called Why They Did That. We have a booth over there, a big yellow booth that we'd love you to come and check out about helping you to read the Bible again for the very first time. You see, we know the stories, but we often don't know why they're there. The Bible, friends, is more than a book. It's more than a storybook, and it's more than a collection of storybooks. The Bible is a manual, a manual on how to live. And the stories here in the Old Testament are recorded not so that we would know the right order of history, but so that we would be able to enter in to the Scriptures so that we will be transported back millennia and look through the characters that we love so dearly and look through, look through them so deeply that we would see ourselves in them. If you were to go through the story of 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14, you would get there having a decent understanding of what is taking place in Israel. There's two main players. There's Samuel and there's Saul. One's the prophet, the other one is the king. One is faithful, the other one is Saul. And if you continue to read through, if you'll turn with me please to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're introduced to the character in whom GYC's key theme is, has come from. It says in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 13, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul and 1,000 were with Jonathan, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. Verse 3, And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. So let me ask you a question. If you're reading this for the first time, who is Jonathan? Some of you would say, Well, he's Saul's son. But here's the thing. If you are reading it for the first time, you don't know that yet. You don't know that Jonathan is Saul's son because he has not been introduced as Saul's son. When we first hear Jonathan, Jonathan is introduced as a warrior. Our introduction to him is one where he is slaying Philistines, where his victory is so great that all the Philistines hear of it to the point that they are in retreat. Sister White says that Saul's army were filled with hope and courage upon Jonathan's victory. And that if it was followed through, a great result could have taken place for the liberties of Israel. It isn't until verse 16, you see, 
Because my question was, well, why wasn't Jonathan chosen as the king? It isn't until you get to verse 16, halfway through the story, that the Bible says, and Saul and Jonathan, his son. It throws in that minor detail, that seemingly minor detail, halfway through the narrative, which isn't really how characters are introduced in the scriptures. And so I looked at this and I asked myself, why? Why introduce him first as a warrior and then later on? As the son of Saul. Perhaps you could look at it as a, as, as a coincidence. But I don't believe in coincidences when it comes to the scriptures. I believe that holy men were moved by the Holy Ghost. And wrote these things so that we could study them and learn them. Perhaps the Spirit of God wants us to recognize. That it is not who you are that matters. It is what you are. Jonathan's dad was a mess. A complete mess. Yet despite who his father was and his family issues, God was about to use him based on who he was in Christ. Who his father was didn't matter. What mattered was who his heavenly father was. At the age of 10 years old, I found out that my father was a rapist. That my existence was the result of a man that could not control his lusts. A man whose friend trusted him to take his fiancée home after a late-hour house party. A man who drove to the nearest field, took out a bottle of vodka, and smashed it over my mother's head and rendering her unconscious and proceeding to rape her multiple times. I carried that with me for nine years. For nine years, I believed that everything that happened in my life was a result of that horrible action. Those were dark times, times when I didn't know the Lord, but the Lord knew me. And when the time was right, he revealed himself to me. When life was darkest, the light shone through the brightest. When I was closest in my life to throwing in the towel, that's when God, whose hand is not too short to save, showed up. He gave me purpose. He gave me a reason to exist. He put love in my heart where there was once hatred. And he showed me that, Dean, it doesn't matter who your father is. I am your father. Friends, it matters not whose blood runs through your veins. It matters that the blood of the Son of God was spilled for you. I want to tell you here this evening that our identity is not found in family trees and DNA markers. It is not so much about 23 and me as much as it is about 33 and me. 33 years of the life of Christ will have far more effect on the person that you are going to be than two sets of chromosomes. Our identity as Christians, our identity as Adventists, our identity as humans is found wrapped up in God in the person of Jesus Christ. So we get to 1 Samuel chapter 14 and Saul is, seek, is, is sulking under a pomegranate tree. And you have, to be, you have to be really, really sulking to sulk under a pomegranate tree. He's given up, but Jonathan has not. Jonathan takes his armor bearer, armor bearer and they head on a kamikaze mission. If ever you have seen one, it's where he utters those words in verse 6. Come and let us go unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by few or by many. Don't just read past that. That's crazy. That's crazy talk. That's like me and brother Jem going to Afghanistan 
and standing outside the borders of Afghanistan and we're there on Instagram Live so you can all watch. And we're like, hey, we're just going to run in and try and convert as many people in this country where it's literally illegal to be Christian. We're just going to go in, maybe go to work, maybe he won't. It's crazy. Crazy faith. It's insane, but that's exactly what they go and do. He says it may be that God will work for us. Friends, this is not presumption. This is faith. Faith, as our pioneer A.T. Jones once said, is taking the word of God as it is and trusting and depending only in that word to get it done. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, they go forward. They go forward bearing those promises in mind. And they test the Lord. Lord, if this is your will, then when we show up, tell them to come. And so they show up there and they see, they look, oh, the, the Hebrews have come out of their caves. Come up to us. Let us show you something. And so Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, the Lord is with us. Let's go. They go. And friends, they slay them all. How much of a difference did they make? Look at the very last verse, 23. Sorry, 1 Samuel 14, 23 says, So the Lord saved Israel that day. That's how much a difference they made. This is the same language that was used when God delivered them from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. The Lord saved them that day. It seems crazy that this is how God is working. But friends, let me let, me let you in on a little secret. Can I do that? Christianity is crazy. Christianity is bonkers. The problem is that we have spent far too much time trying to make Christianity normal. It was never meant to be normal. Raining food down from heaven isn't normal. Parting seas and sending plagues, God becoming a man and then dying, resurrections, blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, dumb people speaking, martyrs singing at the stake. Friends, this is not normal. It was never meant to be normal. And it is in the times when we have put forth the most effort to make this normal that we've been least effective. It's in our efforts to not feel ostracized by the world that we've somehow lost sight of our mission. It's in our efforts to blend back in with the world that we look strange to heaven. It's in our efforts to be normal that we have appeared uniquely strange. Christianity and Adventism was always meant to be crazy. Moses summed this up when right before his death at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he looked at his people and he says, one man of you shall chase a thousand. Can you picture that in your head? A thousand men running away from just one. Joshua 2 on his deathbed in Joshua chapter 23 verse 10 says, One man of you shall chase a thousand. How? For the Lord your God is with you. He is it that fighteth for you as he promised you. Friends, one man can make a thousand run. That's crazy, but that's Christianity. To have faith to stand before a thousand men because you know that God stands behind you. That's faith. He wins the victory on our behalf. And I know I would not be here today if I had to fight my own battles. Sister White says that Jonathan was moved by a divine impulse. A divine impulse. I used to think that God had stopped sending divine impulses. And then I realized that he's been sending more and more divine impulses as time has gone on. The difference is that we just seem to not have the faith to go forward with 
those divine impulses. And so I was looking through Ellen White's writings, looking for a time when she brought up this phrase. She uses it, of course, in this story, but she also uses it in the story of Balaam as he's prophesying of the, of the coming of the Messiah and then speaks of it in the great controversy as God's last people being moved by a divine impulse to go forth with holy zeal and shine for his glory. And then there was another quote. And the quote was simply this, as long as... As the cross of Christ is kept in view, there will be a divine impulse to render to God body, soul, and spirit. Friends, as long as the cross is kept in view, there will be a divine impulse. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, of course, of course, if you wanted to believe that one person could make all the difference, you need only to look at the one person that did make all the difference. Friends, let me tell you, Adventism is nothing without the cross. Do we have the sanctuary? Yes. The three angels' message? Yes. Prophecy, health, lifestyle. We have all of these things. But woe betide the ministries and the churches that go forward with Adventism and leave Christ behind. More about Jesus. More about the cross. Adventism has not exhausted the cross. Sometimes we dangerously tread the path of putting prophecy before the prophet himself. We have far too many evangelistic series where we are telling of times and dates, but not of Christ. We have limited the power of the gospel to biblical arithmetic. And all that does is it produces Christians that are convinced but are not converted. Jonathan had the cross of Christ kept in view. And he may not have seen that yet, but he had the picture of the character of God as he went forward. And friends, if you and I were to keep the cross before us, if we were to sleep there and to wake there and to walk there and talk there, if we were to live there, we would be doing truly radical things for Jesus. If we saw what one man accomplished with his whole life wrapped up in the Father's will, we would go forth with that same confidence. And so I encourage you, in all that you do, preach the cross. Think on the cross, lift up the cross and go forward knowing that the man that hung on the cross hung there for you so that you could change the world. But I think this narrative has a little more to say. Notice that as Jonathan goes forth, as I mentioned, Saul sits there sulking under the pomegranate tree. Friends, it would have been easy for Jonathan to sit there also. If he were alive today and were a millennial like myself and some of you, oh, it would have been so easy. He would have just sat there and reverted to type as the Israelites and just moaned and moaned and moaned. Now, friends, it's one thing to be frustrated. It's another thing to not agree with every decision that is made. But we go too far when we sit down in a huff and moan about how things are not happening in our church and how leadership is failing and how the church has lost its focus. There's a name for people like that today, trolls. Facebook warriors who are theologians in their basements but are not leaving to witness to Jesus about anyone else. Our excuses have not changed. Oh, I can't. I'm not enabled, I'm not equipped, my church is too old, it's too restrictive, you wouldn't understand. Listen, 
While the church leadership was sitting under a pomegranate tree, having a big moan that the work was far too hard to get done, Jonathan was out there getting things done. You have two options, friends. You are part of the problem or part of the solution. And I encourage you, if you think you might be part of the problem or you're surrounded by people that are part of the problem, take that same energy that we so often put into critiquing and redirect it into productivity. Because whilst inside you're claiming that it can't be done, God has people out there getting it done. I've witnessed too many people complain about their elders and their pastors and their conference presidents. In the words of our world church president, go forward. You need no permission to work for God. You need no degree. You need no special blessing other than the one that God himself is waiting to outpour. Jonathan did not wait. Verse 1 tells us that he did not even tell his father what he was going to do. He just got up and did something about the problem. Friends, we do not wait for man's command because God has already commissioned us. What makes me wonder is that maybe we just don't actually want it enough. Maybe we've just been here for so long and we've read enough that we have a good understanding of what things could be like. We'd just much rather someone else made it so. We'd much rather sometimes as young people sit at the back of the church scrolling down on Instagram moaning that the pastor has no idea what he's doing. We'd much rather moan that our friend was disfellowshipped but not show up at the business meeting. We'd much rather criticize a movement that God raised up and not man but neglect to get ourselves involved so we can understand why certain decisions were made. Friends, I believe that this church will do exactly what God said it will do. It will go right to the end, until the coming of Jesus Christ. But the more that I'm here, the more I'm resigned to the fact that it is going to be a painful journey. Friends, Jonathan gave up his life here. He gave it up in this chapter. He didn't die, but he was willing to. And that makes me kind of afraid, because I don't see that zeal very often anymore. I'm fearful that our young people would rather show off their new shoes than their old Bibles. I'm fearful that our young people say that they cannot hear God speak to them through the Bible, but yet we binge watch Marvel movies as though they're the only way to heaven. I'm fearful that Jesus stood before a whole heap of men that were wanting to take his life, and he said, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And when we read those things, there's no semblance of emotion. But when a fictional character appears on the big screen, snaps his fingers and says, I am Iron Man, everyone is in tears, even our own young people. We wonder why miracles don't happen today when we've made our gods digital ones. We wonder why we can't see God anymore when our feet are in the church, but our head is outside. Friends, I want to encourage you this evening. I believe with all my heart that God can use you to change the world. But to do so, he needs all of you. To do so, he needs every single part of you. We cannot be used by the Holy Spirit if our lives are singing, I surrender most. I encourage you all, take responsibility for the condition of your local churches. And then take responsibility for being the change that you believe is necessary. Be the difference. Strive for that. Because when God asks you what you did with your time and the talents that he gave you, you can't sit there and say, well, I tried a couple times. 
Friends, I encourage you to put your trust in the Lord. One man shall make a thousand run. How? The Lord your God. It is he that fights for you. He has promised you. Take those promises and claim those promises. Put your name there. Dean shall make a thousand run. The Lord your God, he shall fight for Dean. He has promised Dean. And the very next verse in Joshua chapter 23 verse 11 says, Take heed therefore that you love God. Friends, check that. Analyze that. You cannot love God by default. God will fight for you. So he says, love me. And do the scriptures define how we should love him? With all of our hearts. Friends, with all of your hearts. Movies and television, celebrities and pop culture, social media and attention craving. You cannot give those things your heart and also love God. Not the way he asked. No other gods is what he said. That was the command. Friends, you can make all the difference in the world. You can be like Jonathan here in 1 Samuel 14, and you'll never know how much of a difference you make until you put those things to the side and give your whole entire life to Jesus. Dr. Thomas Bernardo didn't know how much of an impact he was going to make until 60,000 children were taken into one of the 96 homes that he was responsible for erecting. How about the man who coined the phrase, the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. Dwight Moody has no idea how many people he's responsible for saving, but he will see in the kingdom of God just the power, just what the power of the gospel can do. Tell the orphans of Bristol that George Muller was only one man and couldn't make much of a difference. Tell John Boss that thousands of disabled people that he helped with asylum just weren't worth the efforts. Tell Ellen White next time you see her that the years that she spent laboring away writing book after book after book so that you and I would have a more complete picture of the character of God that she just didn't make enough of a difference. Tell the Son of God, the King of Kings, who became a babe and lived a sinless life, surrounded himself with 12 men that you and I would likely shun today, invited a devil to be his friend in the hope of changing his heart, a man that suffered like no man, a man who was deserted by his closest friends, a man that went to the cross and suffered untold agony so that you and I could have a chance to be saved from this horrid world. You tell him that one person cannot make a difference. Friends, God will fight for you. As an individual, not just as a world church, God will fight for you. Do you believe that one person can change the course of human history. I invite you as we close to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a story hidden deep inside this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And when you're there, just say amen. Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says, This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. Now listen, if the wisest man in the world is saying that this specific piece of wisdom is great, we ought to listen. Verse 14, he gives this story. There was a little city, and few men within it. And there came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, 
And he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that poor man. Friends, the city had few people. It wasn't great. There was nothing, nothing fantastic about this city, but a great king came along and wanted to add it to his list of conquests. And so the people are subjugated. There's no way in. There's no way out. It looks like they are doomed to suffer under his reign forever until a man comes along and delivers them, not by weapons, not by war, not by force, but by wisdom. Yet no man remembers him. Perhaps if he was a great man, a warrior or a soldier, perhaps a man clad in costume with a fancy shield and he fought his way through the king's minions, maybe then he would be remembered. But no, he did so by wisdom. And here's the thing, friends. The reality is that if you do not take this charge to step out in faith for God and allow him to use you to cause change, if you choose to do that, it might not be popular. Your friends might look at you strange. Your family might mock you. Even your church might turn up their noses against you. But we are not in this work to be remembered. We are not here so that our names would be on videos and in magazines and newspapers. Friends, the Bible says that if Christ is lifted up, all men shall be drawn unto him. Friends, Jesus is that poor wise man. Satan came to this poor planet with few men within it. He built great bulwarks against it and besieged it. And it looked like nobody was going to be able to deliver this people. Until within the city there was found a poor wise man. And the deliverance that Jesus brought was not by force, it was by wisdom. The wisdom of the cross. Friends, we are otherwise hopeless. Captives to sin and to Satan. We have no way out of the city but for the cross of Christ. It's the cross of Calvary that makes the biggest difference. It was Christ enduring that. It was Christ suffering on that. That is where our power comes from. Our power for change comes not from prophetic charts. It comes not from the health message, nor does it come from a correct understanding of end time events. Our power comes from the cross of Calvary. And just as Jonathan was moved by the divine impulse, if we keep our eyes on Calvary, there will be a divine impulse that follows everything that we do too. It is that cross, when lifted up, when carried on your shoulders, that will propel you in your lives from making a difference to making the difference. Be that poor wise man. Look for the impossible. Look for the situations where you have to simply put all of your trust in God and then go forward. Pray for that wisdom. Pray for that divine impulse. Pray for that faith that you would have to go wherever God is leading. Friends, the reason why no one has changed the world yet is because we haven't changed the world yet. And the reason why we haven't changed the world yet is because you and I haven't changed the world yet. We cannot expect our church to do it for us. We must go forward as Christ has commissioned and be the church. We must seek to make the difference everywhere that we are, everywhere we go. We should be looking to show people an accurate picture of the gospel.
today, friends, I would like to invite you to reignite your walk with Jesus Christ. The call to be a crazy Christian goes out to you today. Go crazy for Jesus in the mission field. Don't try and be normal. Go crazy for him in the workplace. Crazy for him at school. Look for the impossible. Look for opportunities to make a difference and then allow God to work in you. My appeal to you this evening is for those of you that have allowed your Christianity and your relationship with Jesus Christ to become normal. To those that have allowed their zeal to simmer. To those that have stayed in the background in unbelief, not sure that God could use them. Friends, heaven is at your disposal if you but trust in him to guide you. And so I invite you, if you feel as though the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart this evening, to reignite that relationship with Jesus Christ. To choose today to give him your heart and allow God to work through GYC in your life. To experience the transformation that you have been waiting for years, maybe for decades. God is giving you, you personally, an opportunity to start all over again. Friend, that fire can be relit. That relationship can be revived. Your walk with Jesus can be everything that you want it to be and more. If that's your will this evening, I invite you to stand to your feet and to come forward. If that's your will, if you want to restart that walk with Christ this evening, we invite you here to the front. As you're coming forward, I'd like to take your minds back to the book of Numbers. Where Jesus Christ, in John chapter 3, said this is the picture of the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You'll remember the story. The people of Israel were attacked by bronze serpents, fiery serpents. They were bitten and many of them were dying. And so Moses, by the command of God, erected a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and said, if you want to be saved, come here and look. And if you look, you will be saved. And so they would come, and they would look, and they would be healed. And then what happens after that healing is they would turn around, and they would go home, back to their tents. But they would go back to their tents, and guess what was waiting for them? Serpents. And they would get bitten again. Ah, oh, it hurts. I'm dying. I'm losing my grip on life. And so do you know where they'd go? They'd go straight back. They'd go back to the pole, back to the serpent on the pole, the representative of Christ taking all of our sins upon his own shoulders. And then they'd experience healing. And then they'd go back to the tent. They'd get bitten again. And they'd go back there and look up and they'd be healed. This up and down, backwards and forwards relationship with Jesus Christ that you and I know all too well. Friends, can I give you some advice? You don't have to keep leaving. You don't have to keep going back to where you came from. And then when you realize everything is a mess, go back and look for Jesus. It doesn't have to be that way. Here's my advice. Go home. Go home. Pick up your tent. Pick up everything you have. Everything you own. And drop it right there. Drop it at the very feet of Jesus Christ. Live there. This is not a guarantee that the serpents won't come and bite you still because they might, but you're right there. 
And if you keep the cross of Calvary ever before you, everything that you do will be marked by the presence of God. A divine impulse awaits every mission trip that is lined up, every sermon that is going to be preached, every door that is going to be knocked here at GYC. The Spirit of God wants to use you. Friends, I'll be honest. I'm tired. Tired of all of this. I'm tired of GYCs as well. I mean, it's great. But can you imagine heaven? How many more of these are we going to have? How many more revivals are we going to need? How many more times are we going to be like, Oh, well, God, I'm just going to wait for you to spark me back into life. Why can't it be now? Why can't it be you? Why can't you be the Jonathans that we need today? Why can't you go forward and change the world? Friends, it's here and only here. And by here, I mean at the foot of Calvary's cross that we can change the world. And so I invite you this evening to come a little closer. Come a little closer to Jesus. Lay all of your plans at his feet and ask him to make the difference in your life as you strive to make a difference in the lives of others. Friends, God wants to change the world for the last time. And he wants to use you to do it. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We are humbled by the fact that you would call us to be co-workers with you in the plan of salvation. Father, I pray especially for the people gathered here at GYC and those that are watching at home and online. That, Father, you would fill us with the same courage and a holy boldness that you filled Jonathan and his armor bearer. Lord, I don't care how many people, how many obstacles, or how many enemies stand before us. One man shall make a thousand run. Two shall put 10,000 to flight. Why? Because, Lord, you fight for us. Give us that faith. Give us that dependence that we can find only at the cross of Calvary. Use us, Lord, to change this world for the last time, to make the difference. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.